ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing great. We're here today to talk about Great American Bash 1987, which was a which was a tour that happened in uh, July of '87, and it came to us uh, from three different arenas. Why don't you go through them, Chad? Uh, well, on this tape, it's featured. Uh, we see. Uh, the majority of the matches are from the July 4th show uh, in the Omni, which at this point in time, I had not even reached my first birthday yet. <laughs> but as we get into the review, this is really one of the shows that I can kind of go back in retrospect and really look at and wish I'd have been a wrestling fan back then uh, growing up in the Atlanta area because this is a show I really would have loved to have been at. Yeah. Uh, probably in one of my top shows. Yeah, I, so I, I mean, it mainly came from the Omni, and then um, there was also a show on the 18th of July um, in Charlotte at the Memorial Stadium, and one at the end of the month from Miami, Florida. At the yeah, Omni. and then uh, also Greensboro. Get a couple of matches from Greensboro. There's a Greensboro show as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, Tony uh, Tony Schiavone is our host, um, and we get straight in. Now, I made a mistake uh, last time out. I said that Tom Miller was gone, and that Gary Michael Capessa was back. Um, but then I remembered that that show was in Baltimore, and Capessa actually had... He was a weird... Um, I've, I've listened to a number of shoot interviews and things with Capessa, and it, it was kind of strange. Like, he, he only worked certain area like New Jersey, Baltimore, like most shows up there, regardless of who they were with, tended to get Capessa um, as the announcer. So that may, um, he, I don't think he was actually working for Crockett full time. And Tom Miller was still around. And he's on hand here to tell us the rules of the war games, the match beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the rules of the war games. The war games consist of eight periods. The first period is five minutes in duration. Each team will be allowed one man in the ring at a time during the first period. After the first five minute period, the referee will conduct a coin toss to determine who has the advantage. That is to say who can have two men in the ring and who can have one. He will hold a black flag representing one team having the advantage. He will hold a black flag representing the other team. After all ten wrestlers are in the ring, it will be time for the match beyond. Submission or surrender. Now, let the war games begin. This 
is also the first show that we have Jim Ross on commentary. Following the uh, following the buyout of the UWF that I mentioned last time. So this is the first uh, first ever War Games match. It's called War Games One: The Bomb. I quite like the way that each of the each of the War Games had titles on this show. <laughs> um, we hear uh, Flair's iconic uh, music, and the Horsemen um, are looking pretty badass as they walk out. We got Flair, Luger, uh, J.J. Dillon, Tully, and Arn. Um, J.J. Dillon is actually a participant. It's five on five, and um, Dillon is. Uh, there. No, I don't think that's the best, I mean, just before we even go into this match, probably tactically not the best idea to have the manager in the uh, in the ring. I mean, I know um, the faces had uh, Ellering, but uh, I mean, just, just, just looking at Dylan and Ellering, <laughs> you don't, I mean, he's bound to be a massive handicap, right? Yeah, I mean, as we go into the match and we describe the ending... Um, it kind of makes sense why the managers are involved, and uh, and of course uh, JJ and Paul Ellering, you know they both are former wrestlers, but uh, they they kind of in a couple of ways were a little bit of a detriment to this match. But I don't know. Uh, War Games seems to be a match where a lot of managers are involved. Sometimes I know. Uh, in the 94 War Games, Colonel Robert Parker yeah. is in the match. So it seems like kind of a way uh, it, in in the year where WCW or NWA would kind of throw the manager in there to mix it up. Uh, you can, can sort of see that, too, from a strategy-wise, because in this type of match, they can kind of stay in one area, stay out of the way of a lot of the main action, and they don't have to necessarily carry a whole match on their own. They can kind of get their shots in and then get out of the way. Do you think it's a fair assumption that anybody listening to this podcast is going to already know the rules of war games? I, I think so. <laughs> I, I would think so. The only thing that we'll mention, I guess we can talk about it now, is you know, war games is such a neat concept. But And I know this has been talked about before, but the... The one thing I always liked, especially in these early war games, is how they always tried to get over the concept of the match beyond yeah, yeah, once yeah. everybody is in. And here you really saw it, uh, you know, get hyped up by both Miller and Ross on commentary. And it was just a concept like war games definitely caught on, but the whole match beyond once everybody is in uh, never really caught on or really uh, just made a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean, the thing that you forget, maybe we'll, we'll get onto it in a second, is that up until the match beyond, they're basically just stuck in there. They just have to take a beating. There's no way to um, get out of the cage. You're you're just in there to take punishment for a good, you know, if you're participant one, that means you're going to get minimum of 15 minutes, 20 minutes of carnage. <laughs> right. Anyway, the, the face team are the Row Warriors and the Superpowers. Um, superpowers being Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff. Um, and as we mentioned, Paul Ellering is the fifth member of the team. Um, I, I should have mentioned that we've had some amazing uh, 80s music so far on this show. And um, the uh, Row Warriors, uh, the face team, come out to some amazing 80s synth.
Um, is that did, did you recognize that music at all? Cause no, I'm guessing when I heard that, just the way the sound levels were on the tape, I would imagine live they came out to Iron Man. Yeah. And then just with the commercial release, they dubbed it over with some generic synth uh, 80s music. <laughs> Uh, because it, the music was audibly louder than like the Flares theme uh, from Space Odyssey when he came out. I had a number of audio issues with this particular show. Um, I will mention that as we uh, as we get onto it. Um, anyway, I thought Tom Miller was pretty good going through the rules. He does make he is able to make something feel like a big deal. Um, it's uh, of course for the Horseman. It's Arn Anderson to start, and I think Arn's always in first when he's in the War Games, right? Um, and his um, first opponent is Dusty, um, Dusty Rhodes. Now, if you were captaining the uh, the face team, would you put Dusty in there first out of the available? How, what do you think of that strategically, Jeff? Well, I mean, looking at the face team that you have, uh, there, there's honestly not anybody that would strike me as a great... Uh, person to go in first from an endurance standpoint. you got essentially three huge muscle heads and Dusty Rhodes and a manager. Uh, so I guess Dusty was as good a choice as any in this regard uh, to go in first. When Dusty's your stamina man, that's uh, says yeah, a lot about your that's team. Not a, not a good bar you're setting right out of the gate. Anyway, Dusty's on top, uh, as you'd expect to start out with. Uh, we see a blatant low blow, the first of many uh, this evening. Um, we get a DDT from Dusty, um, which I believe is called a bulldog by uh, by the commentary team. Um, we see that a couple of times tonight. The this kind of was it a DDT or a bulldog? I'm calling it a DDT. Yeah, it was more like a D. I think I recall the thing. It, it was a little awkward in how he did it, but he clearly pulled his head down and drove him to the mat in the DDT position instead of kind of putting him in a headlock and then running yeah. like the Bulldog is. Uh, there was a couple of sort of miscalled spots. I don't know if that's just the vernacular or Ross was getting used to it. Yeah. The uh, NWA was kind of nervous, but there was a couple of examples of that. Um, Dusty rakes Arn's head on the ceiling, which I thought was a pretty nasty um, spot. He rams his face into the uh, side of the cage. Um, Arn is taking a real beating here at the start, uh, and he's got color already. Dusty is very dominant in this uh, first section. Arn misses a knee drop, and uh, Dusty gets on the figure four. Um, the time is, uh, I think it's the five, the five minutes have gone, and Tully uh, hits the ring as the second man in. Of course, the uh, horseman won the coin toss. Has a face team ever won the coin toss? Oh, I, I, I think in... <laughs> I don't know in the WCW ones, War Games, we'll have to um, notice that as we go along. And I can't even remember what TNA Wrestling calls their kind of version of War Games where they have weapons and all sorts of crap going on. But I do know in one of those, the face team uh, won the coin toss at one point. 
which was completely ridiculous. And obviously didn't work out very well, but hey, that's DNA, so what can you say? Um, so now it's basically Dusty versus the Brain Busters, two on one. Um, he gets some elbows um, in on them, but the heels get on top. Um, Dusty's face is lacerated already. Um, they get him in a figure four and then kind of hold him down as well. Um, this goes on for some time. Animal hits the ring. Um, the crowd is just nuts here. Uh, he launches into Tully. Uh, he launches, sorry, Tully into the ring via a slingshot. Um, now, I don't know if this was just my tape, or, but the crowd was so loud during this that I couldn't hear what the announcers were saying. It was like the crowd was louder than Ross and Shivani for me. I couldn't. I literally couldn't make out most of the calls. Um, yeah, this it was a, a definitely a huge pop. I mean, the Road Warriors in Atlanta have always been probably behind Chicago, one of their premier towns. And I mean, Animal in this sequence, the way he cleaned house with power moves and just his viciousness, uh, really played up the crowd and kind of made them into a frenzy. Uh, he, did a, he did a very good job in that section. The faces managed to isolate Tully. Um, Animal catches on with a nice looking clothesline. Um, and the faces are pretty much on top as Flair hits the ring. Um, Flair and on double team Animal into the cage. The heels are obviously three versus two now. Um, and Tully is just destroying Dusty's knee. Um, and it, his, like, I think Dusty's got this ongoing leg injury that he seems to have had since 1983. Um, <laughs> his leg is always injured. Um, Nikita comes in. Um, have I, yep, I think that's what happened. Uh, Nikita comes in um, with a double clothesline on Flair and Arn. Uh, he gets a massive uh, lariat on Tully. Um, Animal Gorilla presses Flair. Um, there's just a lot of violence going on by this stage. Uh, Flair eats the cage uh, from Nikita and uh, is bloodied. Now Luger enters the ring um, and he power slams Nikita. We get a spike pile driver on Nikita um, uh, from Tully and uh, Flair. Everyone is basically dazed and hurt by this uh, stage in the match. Hawk hits the ring and uh, kills basically everyone and the crowd and the crowd is just I mean it's beyond electric it's one of the loudest crowds I've ever heard to be honest um, and I can I can only really faintly hear Jim Ross <laughs> saying in the background um, that bodies are clashing <laughs> uh -huh. um, he says um, uh, so Flair has uh, the figure four on Dusty now J.J. Dillon has to get into the ring, and uh, I wouldn't like to be him, or indeed anyone, walking into this uh, environment. Um, Hawk completely um, no-sells all of uh, Dillon's punches. Um, Flair makes the save. Tony Schiavone says, who can survive? And Jim Ross says, the size of pain, <laughs> which I thought was a, which is a cool thing of uh, Ross to say. Um, we get a big shoulder breaker on Luger by Hawk. Tom Miller announces that the match beyond uh, is going to start as Paul Ellering enters. JJ Dillon is heavily bleeding. Uh, we get another big uh, lariat from Nikita on Tully. The Row Warriors have uh, a 
prone JJ and beat the living shit out of him. Uh, we get a doomsday device on JJ. Now, I don't believe it was called the doomsday device in 1987, but that's what it was. Still, we get no pin. Dylan, I don't think you... Can you pin in the... You can't pin. They have to submit, right? No, they always make... They, uh, they kept yelling, it's submission or surrender yeah. only, which... Again, was kind of comical because that, I mean, that to me seems like the same thing. I mean, yeah. either your <laughs> submission by definition is you surrendering or giving up, so now, I, don't, I don't quite know the distinction between a submission or a surrender. <laughs> Dylan is basically dead at this point, and um, he apparently submits, and the match is over, and he's just a bloody met. Like, I mean, he legitimately looks like he's dead. Um, so, Chad, thoughts on this uh, rather epic match? Yeah, there's there's a lot going on with this match, obviously. It's a classic match that has a, uh, a big reputation, and deservingly so. Uh, you get 20 minutes of non-stop action, just in par of running down the description of the match. I think you get a good sense of, really, the chaos and intensity and relentlessness of this match. I mean, from bell to bell, while in most sequences it may have just been punches or, you know, somebody getting rammed into the cage, everything was done with real authority. Everybody was bleeding all over the place. And there was a ton of really neat spots sprinkled in. Uh, so this was really rewarding to see. I mean, this is the first match of this kind, and it was done so perfectly. All the roles were uh, played to a T. The psychology of the match with the heels constantly winning the uh, advantage from the coin toss was so smart. Even the strategy at the end with JJ, uh, them going after their weakest link in JJ was a very smart strategy by the faces yeah. to win the match. So uh, to me, like, in War Games is one of the classic gimmick matches in wrestling history and to see it be done so well right out of the gate was very refreshing and rewarding because by comparison I mean the Royal Rumble uh, the first Royal Rumble is not terrible but it's by no means a uh, a great match or really yeah. done in a great way uh, it would take a couple of years for them to really work out the kinks of a match like that in fact it really did it probably t I mean the first really great rumble you're looking well I mean 92 is, is, is yeah really I mean I mean I think right? there's definitely great moments sprinkled throughout I mean obviously with Axe and Smash starting out one and two in 1989 that was yeah. clever and then you had other moments mixed in like the warrior Hogan stare down moment uh, but yeah, I would say 92 with Flair being the Iron Man was really the first complete Royal Rumble that reached classic status. Yeah. I mean, that they had, um, I remember one year, uh, DiBiase goes quite long. Like he would, like he has a, he's like, right. draw two and, um, it gets a massive pop when he fi he's finally eliminated. And, uh, I think you can see, it, and then the, the following year they have Rick Martel play a similar role. Where he stayed right. in for even longer, and you can you can see the idea kind of the idea of somebody going in early, developing as 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 each uh, rumble goes by. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the things with uh, war games is that it's actually structured in such a way that the psychology of each se segment is al almost already written. 
So, because the heels always have the advantage, every single time the heel comes in, he's going to, you know, use that advantage to swing it to their favour. They beat up on the face. Then, um, it's already set up for the, the face coming in to, you know, be all fired up and make the save. Right? Every single time. I mean, and that's what happened in this. Every single time one of the uh, row warriors or, you know, basically when each of the row warriors and Nikita came in, it was a massive moment because they were making a big save. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's it's one of those interesting things because obviously we haven't had a war game since, uh, you know, over a decade, a true war game. So it would be interesting to see if this type of match, how it would play out now because it is definitely a match that follows uh you know a distinct script with its basic structure and it it works and it worked almost every time it followed that script yeah. um and you can sprinkle in you know your own flavor or little touches to the match but it definitely follows a distinct structure and that's you know in wrestling nowadays that's one of the main criticisms of it is it's the same thing yeah. so I, it would be interesting to see if a crowd today could really sit through a match like this structure wise knowing essentially what's going to happen at the end uh that that'd be an interesting thing to ponder i i think it would work but uh i think it would definitely need the correct individuals uh, because in this match, you know, everybody either got a massive pop or was pretty much hated uh, on their respective sides. So that really helped with the characters, uh, with the crowd going crazy uh, when each person entered the match. Yeah, I mean, and also in this match, you basically had four Superman or three Superman and, and Dusty, basically, versus a team of technical, cowardly heels. Right, so, I mean, it, if you had a monster heel in there, it would completely change the dyna- dynamic of the match. You know, if you put a Vader in there or someone like that, um, it maybe wouldn't work in the same way. This structure works when it's the Row Warriors on one side and Tully and Arn on the other, you know? Yeah, that's one thing we'll have to see. I know, uh, like, War Games 91 said is on the heel side. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see, you know, how that works. Yeah, uh, last I mean, time I watched that match, I liked it quite a bit, but it has been a while. So that will be an interesting, uh, you know, definitely a different dynamic from who was on the hillside in this match. I mean, I guess Luger's the closest to kind of a powerhouse on the hillside, yeah, but I, I noticed definitely when, not a monster like somebody like Sid or Vader. When Luger entered, there was little discernible impact on the actual match. It seemed... Like, that was the entrance that seemed most anticlimactic. I mean, I, I guess he was entering at a time where, you know, the match was get, getting chaotic anyway. But it's like, you know, Nikita comes in and it's a big deal. Luger comes in and, it, you know, it didn't really feel like much in this match. I mean, can you remember Luger's yeah, entrance? I, well, I kind of, to me, the, the, the entrance that sort of stuck with me a little bit was Flair. Um, I, I didn't really think Flair came off as... And 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 that's definitely his his heel heel character, mm-hmm. but to me he didn't a come off as much of the world champion in this match, yeah. and b as like the ace of the company. I mean yeah. he did seem kind of just maybe the leader of the horsemen in some way, but sort of just one of a group, not any distinction from him. No, that that that's true. He he entered third, right? 
Yeah. yeah, he entered third, which I thought was kind of I I uh, it's been a while since I've watched this match, so I'd forgotten the order, and I just kind of assumed that uh, he entered right before JJ because I figured they'd save JJ for last. But I was I was a little bit surprised when the door opened up and Flair came charging in. Yeah, but but this is a a really great match. Uh, the finish maybe notches it down a little bit because. Uh, they did, you know, Raw some commentary kept talking about how they were trying to, uh, you know, isolate JJ on his own. And Flair was kind of lingering around, seemed out of position. It didn't come off, I don't think, as great as they hoped it would. And with the miking of the ring, you couldn't really hear mm. JJ submit uh, to get that kind of satisfactory moment. So the bell just sort of rings and... They announce the superpowers and road warriors as the winners, and the crowd goes nuts. But there's a little bit of satisfaction missed in actually hearing JJ audibly quit. Apparently, he legit he uh, legitimately hurt his shoulder in this match. Mm, I did uh, not know that. He, That's he got, interesting. He got injured, and that will become significant later. Yeah, to me, um, it came. I mean, I've always got Jesse Ventura in my mind beating up a manager um, I thought the Row Warriors came off a little bit like bullies because they really beat the shit out of Dylan um, but I, I guess uh, I guess the horseman should have been around to uh, help him out a bit more or protect yeah. him yeah and I'm sure on the TV it kind of was played in the way where I mean obviously JJ sort of had it coming with what all he'd done up to this point no absolutely I mean we've seen how instrumental he's been in almost every single match that he's been involved right. with so far. And I, I did notice on this show that this is the first time I think that we've seen that JJ is the manager of all of the horsemen. I don't know if you've noticed, but so far he's only really been Tully's manager. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, it, it did seem... Um, I mean, obviously we're not covering the TV, and with these shows it's kind of tough uh, so far because we haven't had any backstage interviews or anything like that since the Horseman formed, but as far as just the commercial releases, this uh, release as a whole really felt like where the Horsemen were more of a unit yeah. than any other one we'd seen so far. So th the next match um, on the tape, uh, that one was in the Omni, that match, and this one is also in the Omni, right? Barry Windham versus yes. Rick Steiner. So, yes. yeah, we have Barry Windham versus Rick Steiner. And I thought this was a little curiosity um, cropping up on this. Steiner, I believe, was a UWF guy at this point, And he just kind of come over as part of that package. And he's a heel here. And Windham is the face. We get Steiner on top to start. Um, we get a nice Steiner line. And then a really nice flying clothesline from him. Uh, we get a back drop, a beta back suplex. Uh, stiffed elbow to the outside, then a suplex from Steiner back in. <laughs> but then, out of nowhere, Wyndham gets a surprise pin after no on after no offense at all. <laughs> and that's it. That's the match. Um, <laughs> I quite like. I mean, I've always had a like. I always like the Steiner's offense. I think it looks stylish and flashy. <laughs> um, what do you make of this? Uh, I, I think as we go along, that'll be one thing that I'm I'm willing to go in it with an open mind. 
because I do think the Steiners as a whole is a team that I've liked less than most. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've always liked their offense, but I think as far as sort of the little moments that structure a match together, they really falter uh, before. But that's something that we can see if my opinion changes as we go along here. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a whole lot to judge on. I mean, Rick uh, gave a good bit of power moves to Wyndham. Everything looked pretty good. Uh, But then, like you said, he... Uh, I guess he flipped Wyndham over, or Wyndham flipped over Steiner uh, after the suplex and got the three count, kind of out of nowhere, and only a couple of minutes were shown. So you couldn't really get a full sense of whether this match was good or not. What we saw was fine, but not a lot to it. Yeah, I actually thought that Rick Steiner worked this match like Kurt Angle or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, it kind of... He he seems to be working in a different mode to most of the yeah, other guys at this definitely, point. Definitely, uh, yeah, definitely working in kind of a stiff, a lot of throws uh, and suplexes. A pretty pretty interesting style. I mean, this is in this Omni show. This would have not been one of the top three matches on the card. No. So you know, for compare this match to what we were seeing even, you know, about four years before mm-hmm. in some of the early Starcades. This is a definitely different type of match and a lot more action-packed. So one of the things that interests me, right, is that I, um, often before I, you know, do these shows, I take a look just to see what some of, you know, I take a look at a Scott Keith review. I look at uh, Matt Petticord's um, site. I look at the original newsletters from the time just to see what sort of ratings people give these matches and both um keith scott keith and um matt pedicord our our friend who's who's linked us um gave this uh gave this match dud naught stars <laughs> like um i don't see that <laughs> why are they giving this match naught stars or or the dud rating I would guess that would just be maybe from what was shown. Um, I mean, I don't know what what. I mean, to me, we don't really do star ratings here. This no. would be a match I would absolutely not want to rate. Uh, would kind of refuse to give a star rating to just because of what's shown is so limited. Yeah. Um. I mean, I don't know how long the match was to begin with, but I mean, we really come in right, like we said. In the Crockett Cup tape, it really cuts right to the yeah. to the finishing stretch. So we get no context in what's developed before. No, I I agree. Um, yeah, I I guess the rationale is that the uh, the finish comes out of nowhere, but that's know. true too. Yeah. Moving on from that very brief um, kind of little match that we see, uh, we have Nikita Koloff. This is Lex Luger. Uh, Nikita Koloff is still the U.S. champion here, and this is a cage match for the U.S. Uh, belt. And uh, Nikita, of course, has had that belt since he won it from Magnum TA ages ago. Did he win it from directly from Magnum TA? I'm trying to remember now. Can you remember um, how he? I can't. Won? I can't remember either what the actual lineage of is of the belt. I can look that up while you talk. Yeah. So. Um, we we join the I believe this was quite a long match um, and we we join it 
just before um, uh, Tom Miller tells us that there is 25 minutes uh, have elapsed. So obviously this is this is clipped. Um, now I think that Bob Coddle is uh, on commentary here, um, but the audio is so bad. Again, I can barely hear the commentary, and um, it's Coddle and somebody else, and I couldn't make out who that was. Um, it didn't sound like Tony Schiavone, and it didn't sound like J Jim Ross, um, and it also didn't sound like David Crockett, so <laughs> it may well be Johnny Weaver, if he's still around. Um, did you uh, make out who these commentators were? I, I didn't even make, uh, I didn't even make note of it. Um, I did notice, uh, Coddle. Yeah. But, and, and this, this is really, and of all the, uh, shows we've done, this one is one where the commentary really flips. Yeah. Uh, back and forth. So it gets really confusing with the revolving door. Uh, you have Shivani, Coddle, and Ross, and a variety of roles, uh, on this tape. Yeah, well, and I looked it up, and Nikita uh, did defeat Magnum TA uh, in the best of seven series um, to win it. Uh, though WWE officially says it was a tournament final. Right. Okay. Um, so. I, for some reason, I can't. That couldn't have happened on one of the shows we've done because I can't remember it. No, I think that was maybe on the. Uh, Saturday night show, August 17th, 1986 is the date of it. It just says Charlotte, North Carolina, live event, so, now, no, I don't know. Before we get into this match, I noticed that the referee is Earl Hebner, and I'm very surprised that he's still around. Um, I, I really would have thought he would have been in the WWF by this point. Um, yeah, I guess. I, I didn't realize that either. Like, I mean, we're after WrestleMania three, and yeah. I, I would have sworn he was... So, uh, but I guess that was his brother. It's, yeah, it's did, so tough. You're used to Earl in the Attitude area, but I guess uh, Dave was around what, what maybe he, at that time. He came in for the evil twin referee angle. And I think yeah, by that time, now that that definitely was both of them. So that's I think February of '88. Yeah. So so we know for sure that he's winding down. But I would have expected by this point in time he was already yeah, in WWF. So we get a very long headlock sequence to start with here uh, from Luger. Um, we get the the elbow from Luger, then back to a headlock kind of chin lock thing. It just starts off as a headlock and then morphs into a chin lock. And he sits in that for what feels like a very long time. Um, finally, this head this uh, kind of hold breaks, and uh, Luger gives Nikita a nice swinging net breaker which is a move I didn't know was in his repertoire. Um, he kicks and uh, elbows his neck uh, with the same sort of viciousness that we saw in the last match um, uh, between uh, these guys from the Crockett Cup. Um, right. We get a nice clothesline for a two count. We get a pile driver attempt, which is reversed. Then we get a uh, full Nelson. <laughs> so obviously um, I should have mentioned that Nikita's neck is still injured here. Um, He's still wearing the brace. I thought the full Nelson was a strangely old-fashioned move. <laughs> Did you think that? How many times has the guy bust out a full Nelson? <laughs> yeah, I guess... Uh, I don't know. I guess still at this point in time, we had Hercules and Billy Jack Haynes. 
Yeah. Fighting over the full Nelson over in WWF, so it was still around, but uh, definitely think it was kind of on its way out. <laughs> Feels like an old school move. Yeah, um, the last person I can remember doing it really, and I'm sure somebody else may come up with a better example, but I know the Warlord mm. uh, did it in WWF, but yeah, he did. He did it. Use the full Nelson. Yeah. Um, we get back and forth punches now, um, but Luger comes out on top. Thirty minutes have uh, gone, we're told, um, and I, I noticed that they still haven't gone to the cage, Chad, and no blood. <laughs> um, then we then Luger goes back to the chin lock, and I couldn't help think that asking these two guys to go thirty minutes plus in a cage. Is asking a lot of these two particular workers. It's not an idea. It's not a match that I'd say is ideally suited to either of them. No. Um, yeah, that was a strange uh, choice uh, from the amount of time and the uh, the actual gimmick of the cage to the story they're trying to tell didn't seem to match up either. Yeah, I mean Nikita had definitely improved a hell of a lot as a worker in the time that we've seen him. But I, I still don't think that he could have necessarily um, carried somebody like Luger, who is still, you know, relatively early in his career, um, right. to to a to a thirty-plus minute cage match, which is, I guess, why we get so much um, so much rest hold. Um, anyway, we get four punches in the corner, and uh, Nikita hits the sickle, and then we get a ref bump. Um, J.J. Dillon is uh, sneaking around outside and he drops a chair into the cage um, and obviously Luger whacks uh, Nikita with it who is completely out of it after the uh, after being nailed with a chair and he gets Nikita in a torture rack um, and his arm drops three times so how many times do you see that? The arm dropping three times and we have a new the winner and new US champ uh, Lex Luger so we, we don't see that many title changes, so this is a pretty big deal. Um, what do you think of this one? Uh, this match is kind of conflicting. Um, uh, I talked a little bit about it just a minute ago with the psychology of the cage, but the psychology of the actual match I thought was very good. Uh, as I said on the last podcast, I really love story-oriented matches, and this one was definitely... Uh, a story-oriented match on Nikita's neck and actually paid off with the torture rack, which you don't see uh, very much where you actually get a finish that really pays off on the story of the match. But that being said, they did not use the cage very well at all as a weapon. Uh didn't seem like there was any need for the cage besides to keep uh, JJ out, but he interferes anyway mm. and throws the chair over. And the other thing is, even though the story was very sound, we did get a lot of long uh, rest holds. Uh, the chin lock, while not the worst chin lock I've ever seen applied, was applied for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, minutes went by where he was in the chin lock, and then also the full Nelson. So, it, you know, as us coming in at the 25-minute mark, I can only imagine the amount of rest holds uh, that predated when they cut in at this tape. So that, you know, definitely not a great match or even I'd say a good match. It's a match that has really good sound psychology. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't want to totally blast it because it was, you know, quite frankly, really smartly worked, which is not something you'd expect from Lex Luger versus Nikita Koloff going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the action was lacking in a lot of areas. No, I, I'd, 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 uh, I'd basically agree with that analysis. I, I, I think we've come to expect a lot of blood now, um, watching these NWA shows, and to have a cage match with no blood at all is um, quite surprising. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, just well, just seeing the sense of urgency that everything in the War Games match had. And, you know, the only thing bridging those matches was the two-minute Rick Steiner, Barry Wendell match. So you're essentially going from one match to the other. So seeing the urgency in that match and really people going full blast into the cage and shaking the structure and all that, to go from that to a four-minute chin lock in a cage was pretty jarring and sort of took you out of it. Yeah. that That match was in Charlotte, by the way. In the Memorial Stadium. Is that in Charlotte or Greensboro? I, uh, oh, it could have been in Greensboro. You're right. Actually, I think you might be right. I think it's in Greensboro. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, it's in Greensboro. Yep. <clears throat> so the next match uh, is a Texas Death Match um, between Dick Murdoch, who's got Eddie Gilbert in his corner, against Doctor Death, Steve Williams. Um, who is a, a UWF guy and uh, one of Jim Ross's favorites, as we know. Um, and uh, we get a very brief clip of, uh, of, of the boss, Magnum TA, um, <laughs> who's in uh, Steve Williams' corner. Um, Ross and uh, Shivani are back on commentary now. Um, and uh, Murdoch attacks uh, Williams with a, with a weapon. Ross. Um, calls him a cagey veteran. Um, Murdoch uh, Murdoch uh, knees uh, Williams' arm, which is injured, is taped up. Um, Williams makes a comeback and hits um, a... <laughs> I think he hits a four-point stance and um, Jim Jim Ross basically almost uh, orgasms on commentary. Um, he got... You know, you know when he gets... Uh, excited. I'd, I'd say he was almost kind of Austin excited here for uh, for this uh, four point stance. Yeah. Um, He nails um, Murdoch with a uh, cast and wins with a 10 count. Because uh, obviously a last man standing Texas death match is a 10 count. Post-match, um, he beats up uh, Gilbert uh, for good measure. Murdoch tries to sneak attack with a chair. Um, but Williams nails him with Magnum's cane. And um, according to Dave Meltzer, this was the best match of the undercard. <laughs> Uh, on this particular show, and I think this is the um, this is the back in um, back the in Omni. Omni, yeah. So best match of the undercard, Chad. Um, I'm kind of surprised uh, to hear that, um, given that the Rock and Roll Express Midnight 
match was still coming up, and that was in the Omni. Yeah. Uh, this this is kind of along the lines of the the uh, Wyndham Steiner match. There's just not a lot to base it on. Uh, I don't think Doctor Death really became a great worker until the '90s over in Japan. Mm. Uh, he had a real hot streak there. Here, he was kind of hot and cold. He could do power moves really well, but couldn't really put together a great match. Uh, Murdoch didn't seem really on his A game either in this match. So I don't. I mean, maybe it was a lot better uh, in full. But what we saw here, I didn't think was very good at all. How much Murdoch have you watched? No, no, this is this is something I have to admit. Okay, these are two guys that I've never understood the hype about either of them. I've never understood why Murdoch is so rated. I've never understood why um, what. Steve Williams's rep is based on. Admittedly, I, ha- I haven't seen his uh, Japanese stuff. Yeah, all, all the Steve Williams I've ever seen has disappointed me, really. Yeah, the J- the Japanese stuff, I would say, mainly from about mm, ninety three to ninety five, that kind of area. Mm. Uh, that that's really it's basically nineteen ninety four. Just watching the ninety four yearbook, I would put. Steve Williams is one of the top two or three best workers in the world. Wow. Okay. Uh, which, which honestly was not something I was prepared to say going into that set. But watching, you know, what he did with Toshiaki Kawada and Mitsuharu Masawa in that year, and he was really portrayed himself as the top gaijin ace over in Japan was really refreshing. But here he was still relatively young. And uh, definitely rough around the edges. You saw that in the later UWF footage I saw where he was really rough around the edges. Murdoch is somebody that I'm really hot or cold on him. Uh, There's there's a lot of stuff that I've liked that I've really loved. And then a lot of stuff that I, I really wanted more out of that looked really good on paper but just didn't. Uh, pan out as well as I'd have hoped. Well, I, so. did, I, did, I, did, I don't really like. He just seems a bit bland to me. I don't really see anything that he does that makes me. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm guessing that he his reputation must be built on something. But um, all the matches I've ever seen him in have been along these sort of lines. Really, kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, his his promos um, are really good. Uh, he definitely, you know, his moniker, his gimmick is Captain Redneck, mm-hmm. Dick Murdoch, um, and obviously Parv, you're not someone that's grown up in the South, and obviously <laughs> I am. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Murdoch is somebody that I can definitely visualize as, you know, like an uncle-type character that if he grew up in the South, you know, somebody that kind of talks and acts a lot like Dick Murdoch. You know, notwithstanding the the uh, Ku Klux Klan association that yeah. I guess has been pretty much confirmed uh, about him, but just his whole demeanor uh, with him, with the way he speaks and the way he acts, I can definitely see how that would resonate uh, to people in the South that grew yeah. up here. Okay, and what, um, given that is, I mean, why is he a heel character? 
Well, in, in, I know in some of his promos, he really comes off as boastful, and he does that really well. Uh, he really comes off as kind of a boastful uh, dick, and then, but then he can flip that around when he gets really fired up. Right. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, I think that's one of his strengths in that he can be a f- effective, fired up baby face uh, that comes to save the day, but then he can also. Just in like his Smoky Mountain promos and some of his Mid South stuff that I've seen, he can really come off as a boastful, kind of pompous dick that you know really shows a sense of elitism uh, when he, you know, I guess the gimmick is he's really no better than anybody else, but he thinks he is, uh, and he really portrays that well. Right. Well, I mean, but have you ever seen any really good matches from him? Um, I mean, I've seen a few matches I would really call, uh, you know, definitely a ton of good matches. Like his match with Jumbo on the, uh, on the All Japan set. Yeah. I really like that. I thought those were two really good matches to, um, kind of start the set off. He has a match, and I'm trying to think of who all the uh, opponent was. He was with Adrian Adonis as his partner, and it was in New Japan. It's it's uh, him and Adrian Adonis versus Tatsumi Fujinami and Kingo Kimura from 12-8-1984. It's in New Japan. Oh, I have that, that, set, yeah. that is one of the, uh, I think, one of the best New Japan matches really? of the okay. 80s. I might whack that in, actually. I have that. Uh, I have that. I still have to watch that set. I, I okay, have... yeah, that that's on one of the, uh, maybe, disc six, I think. Uh, that that is, that is a very, very great match. Um, just a, a non-stop tag match that features a brutal beatdown um for, you know, we're talking 35 minutes, but it never feels boring and uh, really carries the uh, intensity. He also had some really good matches with Butch Reed in Mid-South. I know you have that set. Yeah, that and I, I really lo- I love Butch Reed on that set. I'm, yeah, um, now, his match with Butch Reed from 10-14-85, I'm looking at it now, that I recall is one of the top uh, Mid-South matches of the 80s. Right. Well, maybe I might go on a little uh, Murdoch uh, between now and the next show. I might watch a few Murdoch matches. Just yeah. To, uh, I mean that that wouldn't be a bad little. I mean, I I would think if you watched the New Japan match I talked about, mm-hmm. uh, the him and Adrian Adonis versus the Briscoe match from MSG at the very end of 1984. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've, I've actually seen, I've actually seen that match. The, the I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm as high on that as some people. I mean, I, I definitely think it's a good match, but I, I, don't, I mean, I, I would put it as, you know, good to very good, but uh, I mean, I don't think it's one of the best matches of the 80s or anything. But that, and then his uh, 1985 Mid-South run, which culminates in the Ted DiBiase angle, which is, uh, a, you know, one of the great yeah. angles of all time, where he brain busters. DBRC on the floor. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I actually, I think I, um, it, right before Murdoch comes in, is around where I left off on the Mid South okay. set. Um, and basically, what happened is my All Japan set came, so I 
started watching all Japan, and uh, mm-hmm. I kind of have never gone back to Mid South. But I, I pro- probably should. There's probably some great stuff from that set that I should get back to. Um, yeah, that that I would say would be the peak of him. So he's definitely had great matches, but uh, I don't I don't know if I necessarily call him very consistent overall. It, I mean, it, it's interesting. Those two matches from the All Japan set were actually my. Um, you know when you're trying to figure out the rankings, uh-huh. that that was often my benchmark for a three and a half star match. So so I had um, that was kind of my like my average my um, kind of litmus test, and I generally put matches either above those two or below those two. They were they were I wanted to make sure they were dead center because they felt like quite kind of right middle of the pack type matches, you know? Yeah, I kind of used that in the same fashion. I mean, I think I had both of them in the 80s or 90s in my rankings, and they were right next to each other. I remember that. They were, you know, within two spots of each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, definitely good, solid matches, but not classics. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the way... I know there's the Meltzer talking point, Sometimes that Murdoch was a lazy worker, yeah. Which I I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't think there's much evidence to show that. I just don't think some of his matches really developed uh, as well structure wise as they could have. Uh, you know, no fault on him being lazy or wanting to just lay around on the mat. They just uh, didn't have quite the intensity of the or the structure to really make a great match. All right. Thanks a lot, Chad. See you next time. All right. See you, Parv. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.